Hello, everyone, and welcome back to We're Watching Star Trek, the original series. I am Brandon Fought here with Paul Crowder. Yo, yo, people. Let's get it going. And we've also got Dan. How's it going? And we're watching Season 1, Episode 4, The Naked Time, original air date September 29th, 1966. And this episode opens with a shot of the Enterprise f- flying near a planet. Uh, Captain's Log says that they're orbiting an ancient world turned frozen wasteland called Psi 2000. The planet's dying and is about to destroy itself, and their mission is to pick up a scientific party on the planet and observe the planet's disintegration. Uh, Spock and another crew member get beamed down into a room that is just covered in ice, and there's a body frozen at a desk. Uh, They're both wearing some protective suits, and Spock orders the crew member to check the life support systems as he looks around and sees the body of a frozen woman. Once again, I like to say uh, the prop is terrible, people, just so you know. Yeah, that the handheld little gun thing uh, just looked cheap as hell to me. I think most of the props here always look cheap a lot, but they're entertainingly cheap, like you, for the time. So I, I normally smirk and smile at them. They always too. They always make a, a really weird sound that you wouldn't expect. Like it's a, a very classic, like over the top sci-fi sound that you wouldn't expect that kind of thing to make. Like I wouldn't think that, that would really emit any sort of sound. But it's just kind of like that weird, like high pitched, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. like theremin kind of thing. Wants to let you know that it's working. Yeah, you have to get that feedback. Um, but Spock scans the area with his little handheld uh, device, and the crew member reports back that all the life systems were turned off. And Spock notes that the woman that he found on the ground had been strangled, which is weird because he looked at her for all of like two seconds. The crewman says that there are four other bodies. Uh, one had been frozen at his post. Uh, tell Spock maybe he should go have a look because there's like a guy that was taking a shower fully clothed when he was frozen. Uh, so Spock just goes into the other room and the crew member moves back to the frozen body at the desk. He's also using some kind of little scanner to keep scanning the area and he his nose starts to itch. So he does what every uh, brilliant scientist would do and he takes his glove off of his hand and then uses it to scratch his nose. I think probably that guy's like the dumbest guy in the show so far. Cause like you're, you're just on this frozen planet. You have all these people dead you, it, in really weird circumstances. And his first uh, inclination with his nose itches is to just take off his glove and start touching stuff. I'm trying to contain my annoyance with this, this particular situation, like without yelling in the microphone right now, but yo, keep on your PPE. It's a common thing in life. Yeah, you're on a plane. Yeah, like what was the point of even wearing it? You're just gonna take it off ten seconds on the plane. Not only did you did you take it off to scratch your nose, but you you took it off, you touched the surface without the hand, you stuffed the dripped on your hand, and then afterwards you even reached inside the mask and touched your nose and touched the mouth face area. Well well in fairness, he didn't know something. Yeah, had but it didn't matter though. Him. You're you're we're protected here for a reason. No, I I agree. I'm just saying in like, fairness. Like, it's like but the thing is like he did every he did everything wrong. Like as a scientist with PPE on, he, he everything he did was wrong. So that annoyed me. I think so. I thought, man, there's nobody that's stupid, like to to literally do everything wrong as a like he he did everything he did nothing right. Right. So like he takes off his glove and he he scratches his nose, and then instead of putting his glove back on to continue his work, he just keeps working. And then that's when you know he touches the desk and the the red liquid stuff moves onto his hand. And then, like you said, he puts his hand back in his mask, almost like he's smelling yeah, it. Like, like, it, like, like oh. <laughs> it was really weird. Well, did you notice that when he took his glove off, he just 
propped it up on a dead person's head. Like, oh, yeah, there, he just whatever. puts it right on that dead guy's head. Yeah, I just, like, how incredibly disrespectful. He's like, oh, he's a table now. It's fine. Yeah, I just, it's just, it, it, it's yeah. annoying. So, uh, Spock goes back into the room and tells the uh, crew member, uh, he's like, hey, you know, don't get exposed to anything. And uh, he calls the Enterprise to report the dead and reports that the cause is like nothing they've ever dealt with before. And at this point, I was just like, thank God it's not more mind powers. So we get the the show intro and then we come back and another captain's log while the ship is still orbiting uh, Psi 2000. Um, and I, I, I did note here that I do. I really love the design of the Enterprise. Like I, there's just something about it that I really like. Um, and actually, I, I keep trying to find like a, a model I can put together of it, but everything's like a level two and three stuff that needs paint. And I'm not going to do all that. I, I, I just, I really want like a small model of the enterprise to be sitting, uh, in, in my office. Of the here. original one or the, um, or the, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I want to find the original one. I can find models of like all the more modern stuff, but I want this one from mm. the, from the original series and they're just they're impossible to find. Mm. Um, so we have uh, star date 1704.2, uh, Kirk is giving just a quick recap through his log of the uh, events from before the opening. Uh, Spock and the crewman are beamed back onto the Enterprise, and the crewman tries to step off the platform when Spock is like, hey, you know, you need to be decontaminated, which is something we haven't seen before. They've been on, what, like four planets, and they never bothered to do a decontamination thing? I wrote that down thing? this time. I like the protocol. It's about time. I was like, it's about time. Literally, yeah. I, that's what I complained about the last couple of times with you. I complained that we come from space and bring the stuff in, and things don't get decontaminated. And this is the first time I saw that. Well, coincidentally, it didn't work. Yeah, and it didn't really matter. It did it, and it didn't. It didn't really matter because yeah, he was already infected. So, but I mean, at least they, at least they did it this time without. I wonder if it would have worked if the suits weren't on. Like, if he would have been decontaminated with the suit off, would it? Yeah, that was the other thing I was wondering. Is like if you're gonna. Uh, understanding, of course, that, you know, they presume that the idiot didn't break protocol and start touching things with right. his hand and then rubbing his hand all over his mm-hmm. face, which is exactly what you should do in a foreign environment. Uh, but, like, do you think that normally they would have also taken off the suits and decontaminated? I mean, obviously, like I said, they assume that you didn't touch anything, so there wouldn't really need, you know, it's not a necessity to, like, strip down and do that, but I feel like it would also be good protocol. I don't get too deep in this, but... Uh... When you get beamed, okay, I'm about to get really nerdy right now. So when you get beamed, you're deco- I, I assume you're reconstructed, like de- deconstructed and reconstructed in a different area, right? Wouldn't there be some kind of protocol that like that would scan your DNA for any kind of foreign objects as you get come back in, so they can just get rid of it? Like that's or, a really or, good point too. I didn't like, think of that. Like oh, uh, like the parasite on you, like let's say a parasitic or- organism, you know, like is on you. Right. And then you go through the DNA. Like, eh, there's a foreign object detected. Like, the DNA sequencer should know when you get put back that something else, something is wrong with you or something wrong with inside of you. It doesn't make any sense why you can get broke down to that level of atoms and then put you together and then not realize that something's different inside of you. Well, theoretically, if you had, like, cancer, it'd be like, oh, hey, we can remove this cancer just but, by well, telling you. Thing about this te- see, I'm about to get so deep. Hold on. That's the thing about the technology. The technology, like, the idea of it is so amazing, impractical in real life, it even sounds amazing. But... The idea of beaming somebody down to the atoms and then putting them back together and them staying the same way, why can't you remove the chemical the chemical or the disease or whatever's inside them? I just don't understand why that isn't possible. Yeah, I also wonder if uh much like their um their engines, if if the you know, beam transportation thing is a new technology, so they haven't 
quite figured out how to put it to use like that. Like, I wonder if that's the case. Th- that that could be. Yeah, I'm just giving, I'm getting super nerdy on it, but I just it's one of those things where because I think about the the practical application of this in real life. Like, if you could bring somebody from one place to another, you could truly take anything out of them or or put anything in them you want to when you get them over. Like, like the idea yeah. of that is just interesting. Yeah, that's a good question. I wonder if they touch on that maybe in other series or something, or if it's just something they never bother with. Because, I mean, I guess if that was the case, then you wouldn't even have this entire episode. So, yeah, like it would prevent interesting scenarios like yeah, this. I, I, I get it. I get it. I just wondered, like, but I think it's more about the detection, not about even even if you can't separate it. Even be able to detect it immediately should be a thing. Yeah, you get an early like, warning. Like, hey, there's something wrong with him. Something going on. Let's find out what it is. Uh, part of, separate him from everybody else. Yeah. Uh, so Scott uh, calls Kirk and uh, reports that Spock and Tormolin, which is the uh, crewman dipshit there, are aboard and they're being decontaminated. And Kirk wants medicine to look them over and says that he'll meet them there in like 10 minutes, which, again, it's really good protocol. You know, you came from a foreign planet. A bunch of people died. You don't know what the hell happened. You get checked out by med bay after you get decontaminated. So in the med bay, uh, Joe Tormalin is being checked out by a machine by Dr. McCoy, who says that, hey, you know, you're good to go. Uh, Spock gets on the machine and it reads that he has a pulse of 242 and normal human pulse is between 60 and 100, so he's a little elevated. Uh, McCoy says that his blood pressure is practically non-existent and makes a joke about Spock having uh, green blood, and Spock is like, well, you know, it's all perfectly normal to me, and, you know, frankly, comparing your human body to my Vulcan one, I'm pretty good with mine. He's like, ew, humans. Yeah. For me, I wrote down the green blood thing. It's the first time we mentioned that he had green blood. Honestly, all, all this Star yeah. Trek things in my entire life I've watched and movies here and there, hear things, I never knew Vulcans had green blood. Yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea. So when I saw that, I was like, "Oh, they have green blood." I didn't know that. Was that in the uh, reboot? In the reboot, I don't, I don't remember green blood. Well, in one of the early episodes, he got hit and he was uh, bleeding green blood. Did he have green blood in that? Yeah, I think it was like in the second episode that we watched. Oh, did he? I, I, I never noticed. I never noticed at all. I don't remember seeing that honestly. Uh, so while all that's happening, um, you know, Joe's just kind of standing in the corner rubbing his arm while a, a really weird rattlesnake sound effect happens or just like rattle. It looks like he's fiending. The yeah. old school, this old school shows, like I've mentioned a lot for have a habit of making a sound effect so you know what something's happening here. So if you're dumb enough to not pay attention to what's going on, you hear this sound, you're like, oh, okay, this is important or this is something's going on here. And uh, they let you know ahead of time the whole time. So. Yeah. Uh, so Kirk enters the room and Joe says that the planet was terrible and that he, he keeps wondering, you know, if man was meant to be out in space and, and Kirk definitely sympathizes with him. Uh, so Kirk asks uh, Spock if he has any idea what happened on the planet, but he says, you know, it's just a really bizarre situation. And Kirk tells uh, Joe to go get some sleep, tells Spock to send up some records so that they can look over. And uh, that's pretty much it for that little situation. Uh, Kirk and Spock leave while a woman named Christine gives uh, Dr. McCoy some paperwork, and Joe is just kind of in the corner staring at his hand, and nobody sees any of that. I do have an issue with this whole scene real quick, because you know how I observe things, okay? So, he's holding his stomach, or something, or his Yeah, he's just holding time. his hand. Like, is he holding his hand? Look, watch as he, like, he's holding his stomach almost, like, not really his hand, though. Like, he, at first, like, his, his arms across his, uh, his stomach. I'm like, what happened to his stomach? Because if he's holding his hand, it would be different. Like, he's doing it, it. It's weird. Like, what's wrong with his stomach? Like, it looks like something's wrong with his stomach, not with his hand. Yeah, like I think he just had, like, his hand pressed up against his stomach, and he was just, stomach. like, holding yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, looked, it just looked weird. Like, I don't think that's how you would act if something's wrong with your hand. I don't know. 
I think it was a it calming was behavior weird. on his behalf. Like he was trying to calm himself down. Yeah, I don't know. It's it just looked weird. Um, so in a meeting room, uh, Kirk and McCoy and Spock and Scotty and Janice are all going through some records, which appear as some video footage on the screen. Uh, the screen shows the frozen man at the desk, and Kirk notes that it's very irrational, almost as if they were drugged. Uh, he tells he notes that the engineer was sitting at his desk, and there was you know the woman strangled and guy showering with his clothes on, and there was some crewman with a phaser pistol in his hand, and says that you know if it, if if what happened there wasn't so ugly, then it would almost be laughable. So like obviously just a really weird situation. Uh, Kirk asks them for any theories from the group, and McCoy says that a bioanalysis of the tapes shows that there were no drugs or intoxication involved, so, you know, they weren't partying down there. Uh, Spock proposes that it could be maybe some form of space madness, but that their spectral readings showed no contamination or unusual elements present, so he doesn't know what would cause them to go mad like that. Uh, Scott says that the tricorders didn't register anything, and Spock says, well, you know, they, they only register things that they were programmed or designed to register, which is a really good point, and that, you know, space still has infinite unknowns, and and honestly, like, that's, a, like I said, it's a really good point, like, you can't scan for things that it wasn't programmed to scan for because you didn't know that they existed, which I wonder after all this, they're going to program for that. But uh, Kirk mentions that they have a, a tight orbit around the planet, and in order to study it as it breaks up, and asks, uh, you know, if whatever happened there could present a danger to the Enterprise or to the crew. Uh, Spock mentions that there will be changes to gravity, mass, and magnetic field as the the planet breaks apart. So they don't really even answer that. You know, Kirk just wanted to know, you know, hey, if whatever happened down there, could that happen up here? And Spock's just like, meh, you know, gravity, planet, whatever. Um, I like how this is the first time I've seen Captain Kirk, like, not the first time, but like, his concern for his crew was definitely the first priority over everything else like it's not that it it was like they were interested in studying it but it's like hey are we safe first right before we try to do this right and like he and it's just it's just one of those things where it shows his um the way his the way his mind works it's like it's crew first you know mission second for him a lot and that's the one thing i respect about his old character the fact that he's like, if we're doing this, are we going to be safe? And if they would have been like, no, we're not safe, I bet Kurt would have been like, okay, forget about it, let's just go. You know, if we can't do it safe, let's just leave. And I don't know, that's something about my... Yeah, he'd have been like, like, screw this whole planet business, like, let's just get out yeah, of here. Yeah, let's just get out of here and let's be safe. But Spock would have been out of there like 15 minutes ago because we know him. Uh, Kirk seems pretty unhappy about the lack of knowledge that he gets from his uh, his crew. And Scott assures him that, you know, as long as people on the bridge aren't taking showers with their clothes on, the engines can pull them out of pretty much anything, and they can warp out of orbit within like a half a second of Kirk's command. Uh, at that point, uh, Uhuru, Uhura calls Kirk to report a shift in the planet's magnetic field and a change in the mass, so the planet is starting to break apart, which I think would be just an absolutely amazing thing to see if you were guaranteed safety during that time, like to just kind of be out there watching a planet break apart, I think would be pretty damn cool. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they, we have that new telescope now, right? That new telescope they released here, that Hubble, that new telescope they have. They yeah. Them in space. So maybe they'll be able to see some stuff like that in the future. They'll be able to look way far away and see whatever's out there. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, elsewhere, uh, Joe is making his meal in a break room, and he seems really fixated on his hand and tries to like just keep wipe, wiping something off on his shirt and on a napkin. Um, Sulu enters the room with another crewman, 
and they're having a conversation about rapiers for some weird weird reason. I heard that right. It was rapiers, right? Yes, rapiers and rapiers only. <laughs> Who knew that's how you measured time? Yeah. So Sulu and the crewmen sit with Joe at the table and try to involve him in the conversation about botany and fencing. And, and Joe's just way too occupied with trying to wipe his hands. Uh, Sulu tries to get Joe's attention and Joe just kind of snaps at him. He's, he's like, hey, you know, you don't have rank on me and you don't have pointed ears. So you just get off my neck, which is really weird. They mentioned Spock. Like, does he have a, a, a weird hatred for Spock? They were just on that mention or on that mission together. I right. think it's more about his. Yeah, I think he outranks him. Maybe he's kind of hard on him. Yeah, but, like, I'm sure pretty much everybody on that ship outranks him. Yeah. Uhuru comes over the intercom commanding all the crew members to get on standby alert. And Sulu asks Joe if he's okay. And Joe just starts ranting about, you know, how they're polluting space and they're not doing any good. Saying they shouldn't be out there. And Sulu reaches over to call, calm Joe down. And Joe picks up his knife from his dinner and starts pointing it at Sulu. Just, you know, still ranting about them being in space. Um Sulu and the other crewmen try to calm Joe down, and Joe starts to point the knife towards himself like he's just going to stab himself, and he's questioning why he deserved to live while six people on that planet had died. The crewman reaches for the hand that holds the knife, and Sulu rushes to grab Joe's other hand uh, that had the red liquid on it. The three of them fall to the floor, and Joe falls onto the knife, so he successfully stabs himself. Mind you, this is a butter knife. You know, I thought that too, but when I... I paused to have a good look at it, and there is at least uh, a sharp point to it. So, you know, he's it not, not going to do like any slashing with it, but he can stab. That's not a sharp point on that knife. That's not a sharp point. That is a butter knife, okay? That is the butterest butter knife a buttery there is. It definitely came to a point, though. Like, you could stab with that thing. Uh, I mean, he stabbed himself. I mean, you could stab with uh, the butter knife, too. <laughs> yeah, it just takes a lot the, of force. That thing did not come to a point. There's no point on that thing. It's like a butter knife. Look at it. Like, look at it again. Like, next time, look at it again. There's no buttery. Um, there's no point in that. It's just nice and dull. You know how hard you got to hit your, poke yourself to, to poke yourself with a dull knife? A dull rounded knife? When this episode goes up, I'm going to put a screenshot of that knife up on the Twitter with absolutely no context. And we're going <laughs> to see. You. Yeah. Oh, is this so a butter knife? Yes, that's the butteriest butter knife around. That's so, that's so dull, man. It even had the little great little thing, notches on the side of it too, like a butter knife does. That's it. <laughs> so the uh, the crewman runs the intercom to call the medics, and then he sees something on his hand and starts to wipe it away. So he obviously got you know some of that red stuff on him too. Uh, we go to a commercial. Come back. Uh, another captain's log, and Kirk is mentioning that a new and unusual disease has been brought aboard the Enterprise, and for some reason that made me notice. I didn't notice before, but all of his logs are from some point in the future. Because obviously, he in the show he does not have that information at this timeline. Yeah, he does. All, yeah, he always says a captain's log, and starts talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's supplemental, is what he says. And yep. yeah, so he has no clue. I, I I don't know why I didn't realize that his logs are all from a future standpoint, like looking back, which makes sense uh, because his logs are supposed to give the space command everything that happens, so he records them. And they're always after the fact. Yeah. So then I was wondering, like, you think I think that this entire series is just someone listening to his logs? Like, all this yeah. has already happened, and at the end, oh. it's just like somebody sitting at a table going through his records, and then just like make it, and then we're watching it. That's yeah. kind of cool. I like that. Yeah. That's kind. Of, that's kind of deep. So we're back on the bridge, and Sulu and the crewmen from the 
uh, cafeteria. Uh, his name is Riley, and they're giving some information to Kirk about changes in the planet, and he orders them to adjust the ship accordingly, which I thought that Sulu was their botanist. Like, why is he suddenly at the helm position? No, he's a helm. He's, he's been a helm guy the whole time. When he was first introduced, though, he was in that the, well, the he, botany he, he, room. He was in... He was in the botany room, yeah, but he's definitely, he'd been in the helm, I think. I thought it was at the helm at first. No, when we first introduced him, I know I saw him in the botany room, but then I saw him at the helm, like, right after that, like, a couple episodes later. So, I assume he's the helm guy. He just happened to be in that room when that girl walked in. He just likes episode. botany. Well, maybe episode. maybe he's multitasking. Well, a lot of people a lot of people here, they get sent to, hey, take the helm. Like, how do you know? Like, when you take the helm, like, how, you know this job, too? Like, are you supposed to know every job in the, see, that's the, another thing I'm about to throw into real quick. So it's it's very weird, or I guess they're like, what do I look for? The labor pool. Like, all these guys from the labor pool. They're like, oh, yeah, you you, you go over there and take that job. Like, oh. You go the helm is just job. like the first I mean, thing you, that they You learn. would kind of want that, though, because, you know, people are constantly dying off in this show. So you need people to be able to jump in a vital spot. Yeah, that's yeah, actually, that's just, really fair. Yeah, so I'm wondering when they go to their uh, academy, do they learn all like all jobs? And then at one point they spe- they they go to the job they specialize in to be good at that one. Yeah, that could be. Well, I would imagine some like Captain Kirk or Spock could probably just do about would be able just to be able to do just about any job on that ship for the most part. Yeah, I wonder yeah. if the captain is kind of required to know all roles just in case. Spock mentions that uh, before the sun and the system went dark, the Psi 2000 was very similar to Earth and that they might actually be getting a glimpse of what the future holds for the Earth. So Kirk leaves his chair to get a status report from Uhura and O'Reilly starts rubbing his hand on his pant leg. Uh, I, another note here is why wouldn't they go to the med bay? Like, surely they couldn't think that whatever happening to them was normal. And it seems like so far they've been a, a mostly competent crew. So, like, why wouldn't you just go to the damn med bay? They probably just think that, I don't know, just um, having a bad day. I'm nervous. We're close to a planet. Like, you, you saw how they, he, thought about, he thought he was sweating because he was nervous. So, it's like, I think they just maybe think they're nervous about the situation they're in. Yeah. Um, but Sulu is now playing with his fingers as well. So, he obviously caught that thing. Uh, Kirk and Spock are at a console going over Joe's records, and Kirk wonders if Joe was maybe trying to kill himself, which, obviously, you know, he was going to. Uh, Spock doesn't believe that to be the case, in which Kirk is just like, okay, yeah, you're right. Uh, Spock mentions that Joe had always had a lot of self-doubt, but what puzzles him is what brought all of that to the surface, you know, in such a forceful way. Uh, So in the med bay, Dr. McCoy and Christine are operating on Joe, trying to fix up his wounds. It's just a, a super quick little scene there. So back on the bridge, an alarm goes off and Sulu explains that the planet's gravity has increased. Uh, Kirk orders them to compensate for it and reaches over to press a button on the console. And I notice when he does that, his hand briefly touches uh, Riley's hand. I don't know if like that was supposed to happen because you know nothing happens with that pretty much ever. Uh, but they do correct their orbit and Riley is shown rubbing his hand again. So back in the operating room, uh, Joe's vitals are dropping and McCoy is confused as to why. Uh, Bones tries a few things, but Joe can't pull through and he dies on the operating table, giving us our 17th dead person for the series so far. Wow. That's, that's for an episode. That's for an episode. Yeah, it's not looking good. I mean, the whole crew is going to be dead by the end of this series. I'm feeling that way. Uh, there's something that um, when he's saying um, when he dies on the table and he says something like, I don't know why this man died. Like, maybe he didn't just want to live. 
Yeah. And um, it's funny because uh, not funny, but interesting because I've heard stories of, of real life where um, somebody like somebody who's heartbroken, like their wife or something dies and they die a couple of days later and they can't figure out why. And it's called a heartbroken syndrome. So I could like you, since you don't want to live, you, you actually can convince yourself to die with your brain. Yeah. You just kind of like, give, give up. So maybe I don't know. Like maybe this uh this uh disease makes you just give up. Like makes you get all your inhibitions come out or whatever, and then you just give up living. I don't know. Yeah, McCoy notes that uh, Joe's wounds weren't that severe and that he definitely should not have died from them. So back on the bridge, uh, McCoy pages Kirk to the med bay, and Spock announces that the planet uh, breakup is imminent. Uh, planet shrinking in size, which is forcing the Enterprise to spiral down into it to maintain their current distance, and they have to be prepared for these kinds of changes. Um, so Kirk pages Scotty to the engine room, um, tells him to tie into the helm because if he should call for power, he's going to want it super quick. And then Kirk leaves for the med bay as Sulu rubs his hands, and he mentions to Riley how much he's sweating. So Sulu moves next to Riley and asks him to go to the gym to do a light workout to take the edge off, which is a really weird time to want to do that. And uh, Riley, whose first name is Kevin, tells him not to be a fool because they can't leave the helm right now. But Sulu just leaves anyway. So he's like, I'm going to go get in a, work in a workout during this, you know, really important situation here. The way he said, though, the way he said to uh, the workout thing to me, the way he said it to him was just so, it was just, it was just weird. It's the way he said it to him. He put his hand on his shoulder, you know, said, hey, you want to go to the gym and work out? Like, I thought he was hitting on him for, uh, for a minute. Oh, no. I, I paused for a minute. I thought, oh, you want to go to the gym and work out? That, the way he said that was kind of like, oh, he's trying to hit on him. I was like, oh. And, hey, and he needs to spotted. Yeah, yeah. It's just the way he said it, dude. I just, I laughed. I said, just was super like chummy. Hitting on him. Yeah, oh, it was a little, little extra chummy, though. Well, actually, hey, buddy, you want to come to the gym and work out with me? <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> wink, the look wink. on his face and the way he said it too yeah that's the way he said it. i was laughing so hard no because i know the actors uh again real life director guy so like it just <laughs> i was laughing so hard i can stop laughing i'm sorry laughing now i gotta stop containing it i just know oh, he's like hit, he's hitting on him in the middle of the show i don't know i was, I was laughing in the bed bay uh mccoy tells kirk about joe says the only reason he died is because he just didn't want to live uh, Kirk refuses to listen to that, saying it's a supposition, not a fact, which, I mean, yeah, you, you can't really prove that. Um, McCoy says he's never lost a patient like that and that, you know, Joe's kind just doesn't give up. But then they were just talking about how, you know, he has all these self-doubts and stuff, so it does, he, he's probably exactly the kind that just gives up. Kirk asks if uh, it's a, the whole thing is just a coincidence, and McCoy speculates that Kirk is going to relate Joe dying to him being down on the planet's surface. Uh, Kirk says that that's exactly what he was going to ask. And Bones says that, you know, Joe was decontaminated, medically checked, and they ran every test that they knew for everything that they knew of. And Kirk says that, well, you know, that's just not good enough. And he wants to check for the impossible. Back on the bridge, uh, there's an alarm that sounds as they get closer to the planet. Spock notices that Sulu is missing and runs to take his place at the helm. Uh, he hits a few buttons on the console, and then he reassigns Ensign Rand to the helm. So Spock's obviously a capable captain, like he, you know, knows that position, steps in when he has to. Uh, he asks uh, Kevin where Sulu is, and Kevin starts speaking in a rhyme about being an Irishman, and Spock just cuts him off and relieves him of his station and tells Uhura to take over. And he orders uh, Kevin Riley to the sick bay and says, you know, the, Kevin's like, well, that's exactly where I was heading. Uh, again, just showing that Spock is a great captain, like just no nonsense. As soon as he started to do this whole weird Irishman thing, Spock's like, get out of here, go to the med bay. 
Yeah. Also, um, Yahura, wow. Uh, she takes uh, the spot at the the helm. Yeah. Quick. Like yeah. It's, we've already so had like four different helmsmen this episode. Yep. And that's what I was, why I was wondering, like, is that one of the first things that they train for? Because everybody seems to be doing that. Spock Page's security tells them that uh, Kevin Riley's on his way to the sick bay and Page's Captain Kirk to the bridge. Uh, so in the corridor, Riley's, you know, just touching everything, walls, doors, opens a door by blowing on it. Like, you know, he's just kind of acting like a child. And he enters the sick bay and taps on Christine's shoulder, asking her where Joe is. And she confirms that Joe had died. Riley does a really weird thing where he grabs her by the chin and he's like, you know something? You have such lovely eyes, pretty lady. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't a creepy yarny thing. Yeah, it, it's like, it, I mean, it's more childlike, I thought, than anything. Okay, another note for me, you know how I do the thing. Okay, so I've seen one brunette in this show uh, earlier this episode. And what color is her hair? It's going to bother me right now. It's is kind it of that. Blonde? I think it's it's more almost a white, like, like silver. Yeah, like, like white, gray, silver. Uh, like that, I think that opal thing was real big uh, on women in the last few years. And I think that's kind of what it is. Like almost an opal. Because you know me, I'd be looking at stuff like that. And like, my thing about it is, is her hair naturally that color? Question one. Or is it a wig? Question two. I don't. I'm just wondering. That's all. That's it. I just, you know, me. I look at everything like stuff like that. The hair, fashion guy, whatever. I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering because she's because she's the first woman I we saw seen in the show so far whose hair is that color. Right. Because I've been watching every episode and it seems like there's a whole lot of blonde chicks up in space. Yeah, yeah, I, I that's saw, a good point. Yeah, I, I saw my first brunette and I saw her hair color. So like, I was like, her hair color is kind of different. I just, I don't know, it stuck with me. But you know me, yeah. I just yeah. see stuff like that. So Christine tries to console Riley and says that you know. He says that Joe's mistake was that he wasn't born an Irishman. And he winks at Christine and then he just leaves. And she rubs her chin and then looks at her hand and starts rubbing her hand as well. So she has caught whatever is going around on this ship. Uh, In the corridor, Sulu is running around with a rapier and no shirt on. And he is absolutely ripped. And he stops to inspect his rapier, pressing his thumb on the end of it. And like kind of winces in pain because obviously it's sharp. And then two men come walking down the hall, and he jumps out at them, calling them uh, Richelieu, I think he says, chasing them away uh, with his weapon while laughing. And so I was curious what he was um, referencing there. And uh, Richelieu is the antagonist of the Three Musketeers novel. Oh, so, yeah. So he's okay. got like some Three Musketeers uh, like fever dream going on, apparently. Okay. Uh, I didn't know that. I, I kind of wonder what it was. I thought it was some kind of Shakespearean type thing or something. I wasn't sure. I knew it was something. Yeah, that's why I was. I, was, I looked that up because I just wanted to see, you know, what that was referencing. Because so far the show doesn't seem to just kind of make stuff up. They do, you know, reference all kinds of interesting things. So yeah, three musketeers. My, que- my question is, uh, the two guys he's messing with. Why was the one guy in his pajamas or I don't know that blue suit? What, what, what was that clothes? What was that clothes, bro? It, I it, think it was, that's it, like it, a maintenance type guy, isn't it? Uh, it looks like a bathrobe with, with legs, bro. <laughs> oh, I must be maybe it, I'm thinking something different. No, 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 no. It looks almost like a bathrobe, and it, but it, but it has legs though. Oh, I wonder if it's like his relaxation clothes. I, I don't because I don't think they're just gonna just, go around like wearing jeans in the future, right? Uh, I don't even know what he. I don't know what he's wearing. I just I know that whatever it is, he has the most high water uh of legs I ever seen. Like the, like whatever capris are, he's a capri times two. 
Like they, <laughs> so is it like almost shorts? <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. They're pretty bad. I just want to point out that once again, there's multiple different types of weapons on the ship. <laughs> We're back on this. I knew. Oh, yeah. yeah, where did he get a rapier? <laughs> maybe he had it, and this is, maybe he just collects it. Had one He's like, I'm going on a five year like, mission. I should totally bring my rapier just in case. You, you never know. Yeah, so he goes to the holodeck, you know, something he can In the beginning in the cafeteria, he so, was having that uh, discussion with Riley about fencing and how, you know, it keeps your muscles toned and things like that. So maybe he got it from, like, the gym that we saw in the one episode. Maybe they just practice fencing while they're in there. Well, they, 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 I bet they do. That's probably let, – let's go with that one. Yeah. Let's go with that. They practice everything else. Let's go with that. So back on the bridge, uh, Spock has ordered Lieutenant Brent to relieve Uhura from the helm as Kirk enters the bridge, asking Spock about the symptoms that Kevin Riley had. Spock says that he was nonviolent, slightly disoriented, and seemed to be pleased with himself. And Kirk interrupts by saying that he was, uh, you know, acting irrational, or asking if he was uh, acting irrational or drugged, or saying he was. Uh, Spock agrees that, yeah, he was like that. Uh, Kirk orders Uhura to contact security to locate and confine Sulu and Riley, and he wants any crewman that has come into contact with either one of them to get medically checked. So, once again, we're classic Kirk. He's just kind of you know, on top of everything. And at this point I was wondering how is he going to screw this one up? Because he just seems to keep doing that. <laughs> uh, Uhuru says that uh, level two corridor three is reporting a disturbance. Uh, reports are saying that Sulu is chasing crewmen with a sword. Uh, Kirk orders security to respond while Spock says that a pattern is developing. Um, Joe's hidden personality traits were forced to the surface. And then Riley, who says he's a descendant of Irish Kings. And now Sulu is an 18th century swashbuckler. Uh, at this point, the ship begins to shake as alarm sound. Psi um, 2000's gravity pull is increasing, and the helm is not answering to their control inputs. Kirk orders them to warp out, but the engine is not responding. He orders the impulse engines to blast them away from or- orbit, but the impulse engines are also dead. Uh, Kirk and Spock try to call the engine room, but there is no answer. So Kirk leaves Spock in command and heads to the door. And when he gets there, Sulu jumps out, pointing the rapier at him. Uh, again with his uh, Rishelu thing. And there's a really funny moment here where Kirk is, he's like, you know, stop messing around, Sulu. And he touches the end of the rapier and then gets super surprised that it's sharp. Like, why do none of them believe that the end of a rapier is sharp? Yeah, I, I know some folks have the little round balls at the end. I don't know. I just, it was weird. But also, like, I couldn't tell if... Uh, if William Shatner was just acting really well right there, if that thing actually was sharp and poked him and he didn't expect it because he seemed like genuinely surprised that that thing was sharp. He's a good actor. Give him some credit. Uh, So Sulu pushes the rapier at Kirk who jumps over the railing to escape and Spock steps up to Sulu who just kind of starts to laugh. And then he just begins swinging the sword wildly and Uhuru gets his attention and attempts to get close enough to disarm him, and he grabs her and pulls her close to him, says that he's going to protect her. Uh, She manages to push him away, and Kirk lunges at Sulu and jumps on his back, while Spock walks up behind Sulu, grabs him on the shoulder, and just instantly renders him unconscious. Which, why couldn't he have done that with, like, the salt monster, like the salt vampire or anything like that? Yeah, I wrote that down, the Vulcan grip. Is this the first one we've seen? Yeah, yeah, it's the first time we've seen that. Okay, I wrote down the first Vulcan grip we've seen, because they, uh... Kurt, when we mentioned, oh, you got to teach me that, he, he did like a real small thing about it, but it wasn't shown as like this big, di- as big a deal as it should have been. Because like, it's, it's such a shortcut of the, him doing it. I felt like they should have emphasized that a little more to let you know, hey, this is something, I, I know later on they do, but this is something that's really important that he has, that he does. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, and Kirk is like, you know, hey, you should totally teach me that someday. And uh, Spock starts to walk away, and he says, uh, someone take D'Artagna here to the sick bay, which D'Artagna was the protagonist of the Three Musketeers novel. So, yep, yeah, so at some point, yep, uh, Spock read Three Musketeers? Yeah, I know that, actually, because I, I found the movies. But I do have an issue, okay, with this. Now, now that we're done with this scene now, I can say something. Okay, in this particular scene, Kirk, Uhura, and Spock all touch Sulu. Yes. How come that infected? Yeah, and... Mm. It's kind of one of the things that we, we kind of get to later, but that was my thought throughout most of this as well, because we're going to get a little bit ahead here, and that's fine. Um, like I said, when Kirk was pressing buttons on the uh, control, he rubbed hands with Riley, and and oh, but I don't know if it was well, just uh, just a mistake, okay. like it wasn't part of the script like it wasn't part of what they were supposed to be doing there, so they didn't really acknowledge it. Like I wonder if it's just that sort of thing. Okay. And then I was also wondering if this whole thing can be transferred, like, through contact with surfaces. Well, once I saw, every time uh, somebody touched somebody, they got it. Like, like you, you can't, they made a little dumb little sound. Like, when you grab the face, we did everything, okay? So, at this particular moment, literally, all three of these people touched Sulu. Which means they all, should, at this moment, they all should got infected. Right. Now, now, now they, they made it, maybe it uh, doesn't go as fast. It takes a while to, uh, to get into them. But there should have been small signs that they've been affected but there wasn't right. and that one you know how i am about details that annoyed me like for for such a great episode that really annoyed me because i'm like everybody there should have got infected and that even makes the episode more interesting if you make them slowly but gradually have issues throughout the episodes of moments of them having that uh the, the sickness in them and then at, then at the end it goes full board yeah it seemed to be uh when they got sick it was like you're fine you're fine you're fine you're not fine anymore yeah, or like, because uh, some people get affected immediately. Some people get affected over time. Right. Like, I didn't understand that. Like, I, I did. I do understand it because I know some people get, take germs different, whatever. I, I, I guess I can't understand that. At the same time, like, it didn't make any sense to me how fast some people got infected, like, immediately. Yeah, it was just a bit like, inconsistent. Somebody, very inconsistent. Very I wonder inconsistent. if that's a, just a case a, of, like their own body like just handles things differently maybe like their uh antibodies and things some people manage to fight it off a little longer or i mean I, it could be an excuse if bones could have mentioned that then that could have been something he mentioned like hey some people's bodies blah 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 this thing faster it's that if bones mentioned it, i'd, I'd let it go right but eh, bones, yeah they probably just bones didn't bones think about it. it so like I, I don't know it just it's something i think about something i thought about stuck in my head yeah so Kirk tries to call Scott in the engine room again, and this time somebody answers, and he announces himself as Captain Kevin Thomas Riley of the Starship Enterprise. So Kirk orders him out of the engine room and asks where Scott is, and Riley says that uh, he has relieved Scott of his duties. So Riley makes an announcement over the ship's intercom, informing the cooks that he would like double portions of ice cream for the crew that night, which is really nice of him. He's already, I mean, he's got my vote as captain. Just based on the ice cream Dude, thing. I just I laughed so hard when he said that. Double poison of ice cream. I laughed. I was like, that's cool. Uh, Kirk tries to leave the bridge, but the doors won't open. And he asks Uhura to handle the doors as Riley sings an Irish song over the intercom. Or at least what I thought was an Irish song. I guess, you know, based on his whole Irishman gimmick. Uh, as Kirk leaves the bridge, Spock warns him that they have 20 minutes before they descend into the planet's atmosphere and burn up. We get a uh, commercial break, come back, Captain's Log, start date 1704, Kirk again narrating, just giving a recap of the situation uh, where he's seen running through the corridors of the Enterprise. He reaches the engine room doors where Scott and another crewman are trying to get through, and Scott says that Riley told him that Kirk wanted him on the bridge and then ran in the room 
uh, when they exited and locked the door, and that's how he got in. Said that uh, Riley has hooked the ship system through the main panel in the room, so he kind of has control over the entire ship in there, which really seems like a... I feel like you shouldn't be able to do that. Like, that's a huge security risk, right? Just in case that's something exactly like this happens. Like, oh, hey, someone wants to take uh, take over your ship. Oh, you just got to take over this one room. Yeah, the Enterprise doesn't seem to be something that's very hard to, like, get into or take over so far. Yeah, but the engine room itself is kind of the heart of the whole ship itself. So I'm assuming they have, when you're in the engine room, you have control of everything. I think that just makes sense to me personally. I don't, I don't think it's more security risk. I think it's just... A natural idea of a natural idea of the way it goes. Like it's the engine room. So Scott says that the only way to get the door open is to cut through the wall circuits, and uh, inside we have Riley still singing over the intercom. And that's when I decided to look up what the song is that he's singing. And the song is called "I'll Take You Home Again, Kathleen." It was written by Thomas Paine Westerdorf in 1875, and it has been, actually been covered by many artists, including Bing uh, Crosby, Elvis Presley, and Johnny Cash. So apparently a pretty well-known song at the time, which actually all those covers happened after this show had aired or or after this was recorded. Um, So on the bridge, Uhura is informing Spock of reports of a fight in the aft ward room. Security reports that incidents among the crewmen are increasing and Spock orders them to go to alert Baker 2 and seal off the main sections. Uh, Uhura delivers the alert status as Kirk enters the bridge. Kirk orders Uhura to continue broadcasting the alert, but uh, uh, Riley has cut off the alert channels. So he he broadcasts that because Uhura has interrupted her his song, uh, she doesn't get any ice cream for the night, which is incredibly devastating. <laughs> uh, Kirk that orders funny. that she cut Riley off, but she can't. Uh, Spock goes into the console and starts just pushing buttons to absolutely no avail. And what made him think that like he could just go over there and take over and do that with no issue when, like, she's been there the entire time trying stuff. Like, he walks over and presses, like, three buttons, and he's like, no, I can't do it. Like, dude, <laughs> she's been trying for, like, the last 20 minutes. Like, you think you're just going to go over and press, like, two buttons and, and it's just going to work? He's like, you're doing it all wrong. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah, she's like, oh, oh, those buttons, okay. Like, come on. Like, she's she always seems really competent in what she's doing, and he's just an asshole and just goes over and smacks, like, three buttons. He's like, no, it's impossible. <laughs> So Riley announces over the intercom that there will be a formal dance in the bowling room, uh, bowling alley at 1900 hours, which they have a freaking bowling alley on the Enterprise. Like, what do they not have? Yeah, they got everything to entertain you there. Who's designing the ship? And they're like, well, you know, we could really use an extra torpedo tube here. And they're like, no, nah, that's, that's where the bowling alley is going. And they just stick the bowling alley in there. Well, the irony is I know about future Star Trek episodes. So I know they have the hollow, the hollow deck. I'm not sure they eventually have it here, but they have it in the other episodes. So, so eventually in the future ships, you can have anything yeah, you want. Yeah, it could just be the one room. But this one, but, they just legitimately have a bowling yeah. alley in there. So Spock says that they have 17 minutes left until the ship enters Psy 2000's atmosphere. And the ship suddenly just starts to shake and everybody gets knocked over, which I really liked. I thought it was, you know, when that kind of thing was going to happen, that it was going to look really cheesy. But it was really well-timed. And, like, the entire cast in that shot uh, really gave off the effect that they were being kind of rattled around. Yeah, that made me wonder, is this on a stage and they can tilt it? Or everybody just acted like they fell and then they I just I had that exact same camera. thought. And then I'm thinking, like, you know, this was filmed in the 60s, so I don't know that they had... I wouldn't think that they would have that kind of stage at the time or, like, the, the technology to do that kind of stage at the time. So technology they had to have just yeah. been, like, jumping around, just, right? 
I think, or maybe they, if they built the stage, maybe they could tilt it or something. I don't, I, I say, I right. don't know. Yeah. Um, so McCoy calls the bridge saying that they're running tests on Sulu and so far have found nothing unusual in his bloodstream and his body functions all seem normal. Uh, so Kirk asks if there's any way that McCoy can get Riley to stop the singing and McCoy says no. Well, not just stop the singing, but just stop at all. And McCoy doesn't have any clue what to do. So Riley comes over the intercom with an order stating that in the future, all female crew members will wear their hair loosely about their shoulders and should use restraint when putting on makeup. And then he starts singing that same song again. And Kirk just, he gives this face and he's like, please not again, which I thought was like a super solid, uh, I guess, reaction from Shatner. Like it really seemed like William Shatner did not want to hear that song again. That like, not just Kirk didn't want to hear it, but Shatner was just really over it at that time. Yeah, it was, it was clever. It was, it was clever. I liked it. Uh, so elsewhere, uh, Scotty is crawling through some sort of hatch while placing some magnets on some walls and some pipes. Uh, he goes to an intercom in the hallway and tells the bridge that they should have enough power in the helm to keep the ship stabilized. And what I really liked about this was even in the tube, you could hear Riley singing his song in the background. I I really thought yep, that that would have been something that they didn't really think of for the time. But like the continuity there is really, really good. He's just echoing off the halls in that little yep. tube. So Spock announces that they now have 16 minutes left, and Uhura is receiving an emergency signal about fights and disorders on decks 4 and 5. Kirk asks Spock to go help McCoy, but you first try to stop uh, and help Scotty get through the bulkhead. Uh, in the engineering room, uh, Scotty's trying to cut through the wall. A uh, man is just kind of laughing uncontrollably in the corridor, and Spock orders him to go to the lab. And as he goes to the lab, the camera kind of pans over, and the guy has painted uh, Love Mankind on the wall in a red paint. Another crewman is singing a song to Janice, who is trying to get to the bridge. Spock orders that man to step aside, and he obeys. So, like, nobody wants to mess with Spock, even in their, uh, you know, like, messed up state. They all immediately just do what he says. They know he's a badass. Yeah, they don't want that Vulcan death grip or whatever it's called. Uh, which, honestly, he should just be doing that anyway, right? Just go around knocking everybody out. Like, what are the odds that they're going to do what he says? That'd be more effective at this point. But that means you have to touch every person. Yeah, that's that's true, too. And do you want to risk the, risk the containment of touching somebody? Because at this moment, we do not know how the disease is transmitted. Yeah, but he already touched a shirtless Sulu, so. Yeah, yeah, same. Um, so when uh, so when Spock turns away, the guy actually just blocks Janice from entering the elevator again, and he's singing to her the same song that Riley was singing, but for some reason he replaced Kathleen with Janine, like not even Janice. He's just making up his own version, not using any correct name, and she just gets like super annoyed, like a kid, and turns around to you know like oh Spock, he won't leave me alone. Uh, so Spock arrives at Scotty, who is saying that he's going as fast as he can and that he can't cut through the wrong wires and that, you know, there's this whole safety factor. And Spock tells him that they have 14 minutes left and if the rate he's going, he's going to need a minute and a half more than they have and that he can't afford a safety factor. Which Spock at this moment is taking up his time by telling him to go faster. Like, oh, thanks. Thanks a lot. You just took 40 seconds away while uh, you're yelling at me. Right. Now you're going to need like two more minutes than we have. You guys see, you guys don't see that scene of what it is, actually. That scene actually is clever in this way. It's a genius, by the way. At this moment, you realize that Spock is a mathematical genius because it comes back to effect, effect later. Because never before have we actually seen Spock to be the math guy of this ship. 
We didn't know he was smart. We, we knew he was logical. We didn't know he was smart. Once he calculated the time he would have to do that, it's like, oh, Spock is a genius, a math genius. I didn't know that to this moment. Yeah, throughout this episode, he seems to be just like a living calculator. Yeah, like you don't know that until this moment, even though he, it's something he's saying to him kind of just on the fly. At this moment, I'm like, oh, Spock is really smart. He calculated he calculated how much time you would have, and we, you, need, you need to go faster or you're going to be over the time limit. You see, that, that's how I saw the scene particularly. That's why when I, it wasn't even about, about him talking to him and taking that 40 seconds away. For me, when I saw the scene, I thought, oh, uh, Spock is a genius. He calculated this time. Oh, he's smart. And that's what it took for the future, especially when the way the episode ends. So in the med bay, uh, McCoy is trying to reach the biopsy lab for his report, but they aren't responding. So he has to go there himself. Uh, Christine says that Sulu's tranquilizers are wearing off and McCoy just tells her that's fine because he needs him conscious anyway and gives uh, Christine some more orders, but she responds in like a really weird way that makes McCoy give a double take as he leaves. So uh, you can assume that he thinks that she's probably been uh, infected as well. Um, So on the bridge, a guy is just kind of laughing hysterically. Like it's a really funny cut. They just cut to to the bridge and there's just a dude laughing really hard. And Kirk orders the helmsman to take him away, like the, the like sixth helmsman, helmsman that they've had in this episode so far. And Janice finally makes it to the bridge, and Kirk orders her to take the helm as Riley continues to sing over the intercom. And this was where I made the note of, like, how many helmsmen do they have? Because seriously, they're at like six or eight at this point. Dude, I, I wish I, I wish you had paid attention to this episode. I wish you had paid attention to all the helmsmen. Yeah, just it. everybody's a helmsman. Everybody kept doing it. So another crewman uh, is unconscious, just kind of slumped over in his chair, and Kirk tries to wake him up but doesn't try very hard, but he's he's unsuccessful. Uh, Riley finishes his song, and then he starts it again. <laughs> <laughs> and so Kirk or Kirk goes over and kind of yells at Uhura to cut him off, but she snaps at him, and she's like, you know, if I could, I would have already. And Kirk uh, sits for a second and realizes that that was kind of a dick move, and that's not her fault, and he apologizes to her. Um so he calls uh, Scott saying that they have 12 minutes left and they'll need two or three of them to power up the engines. And Scott assures them that, you know, they're going to make it through. So we go back to the med bay where Spock has arrived and Christine grabs Spock's hand and starts talking very strangely about how Vulcan men treat their women. And Spock kind of recognizes her behavior and then looks at his hand like, oh, man, you know, she just infected me with this crap. Uh, so he backs away and, and Christine confesses her love for him and she approaches him and, you know, grabs his hands and she's like touching his face and just keeps saying how much she loves him. And, and then Uhura calls and breaks it up, um, asking Spock to go to the bridge uh, because Kirk has to go to engineering. So Spock apologizes to Christine and then leaves the room. And in the corridor, he's just kind of holding back tears as Uhura just relentlessly paging him. That seems to be a theme in this show that if you don't report to where they want you to report, like within three and a half seconds, they're just going to page you every two seconds after that. Like, hey, did you get my message? Hey, hey. Yeah. Yeah, just over and over. Like, hey, we need you to come here. Okay, hey, we need you to come here. Hey, you're not here yet. We need you to come here. Like, no, they get it. Like, there's just a lot going on. So back at the engine room doors, uh, Scotty is finishing cutting through the wall, and he prepares to open the door as Kirk orders a few crew members to put their phasers on stun, uh, saying not to fire unless Riley is armed. So they break into the room, and they interrupt Riley's song and escort him out of the room as Kirk takes a hold of the control panel. Um, In another corridor, Spock is just uncontrollably sobbing and enters a room to try to get himself under control. 
And man, I actually felt really bad for Spock here. Like just a, a very, I, th- I thought just a really good performance by Leonard Neroy. Like just crying Spock for some reason made me feel terrible. So I read about the scene and whatever. So it wasn't supposed to be like this. Actually, Neroy, uh, he improved it to be so emotional. And that's and they said that's the first time they really came up with the idea of making his emotions him not having emotions important. Really? Yeah, I, re- I read about it. Yeah, he he uh, improved like getting so emotional, and they w- and they just kept recording and went with it. And then so they that pretty much so that's when we see him. Anytime we see him not in control of his emotions, it's such a major thing because he's always in control. Yeah, so that's why this that, that's why this whole this whole scene this whole. Uh, thirty seconds a minute of filming him is so like impactful because it's like oh he's always in control until this moment and he's like like you start to feel like oh my god all all this time he's been keeping all the emotions inside you know and he's suffering inside so it's kind of like it's a it's a big uh character arc for his character because you know he's logical and we get that but we don't but I guess as as uh, people we don't realize he even has that kind of emotions in him to ha- that he has to suppress. Yeah, and like and his performance that was just really good. Like I, I genuinely just felt terrible yeah. for Spock in this scene. Yeah, I, re- I read about it. I just thought it was, I read about it. I don't know I read about it and got online read about it and I was like, "Okay, that's really cool." So, I liked it a lot. He he didn't know how to handle his human side. Yeah, he does not have to hold uh, hold his emotions at all. Yeah, and it was just and when he got that and he really went that far, I was like, "Oh, that's really really good." Like it just because it makes you cause if you know anything about Spocky's emotions is a real big deal and when he when he got that thing in him, it just flipped him around. My only issue with that particular scene is I have to get past the fact that he got touched and immediately got the disease. Like it was it was it wasn't it wasn't gradual, but he's a Vulcan, so his DNA and blood's different. That's why I let it go. Right, and that's that's what I was about to say is like they've already established that his pulse is like more than twice that of you know the average human so that means that that disease would have been moved through his bloodstream and hit his brain much sooner much than sooner. Would so that's have why just the regular person myself. i was like, okay he's he's vulcan is different for him yeah i wonder if that was uh kind of what they were hinting at with that whole check in the beginning oh yeah like the club they brought it back to where at the beginning when they mentioned everything about vulcan and his stuff and then later on he gets the disease and hits him immediately so it's like a a circle of hey, we give you this information early, and later on you understand why he became the way he right. was. And maybe they did. I don't. Maybe they're really clever. If they did that, that's genius. If they didn't do it, then that's genius on accident. But yeah, it just happens to work out that way. Yeah. So in the engine room, uh, Kirk gets a message from Uhura that they are entering the planet's outer atmosphere, and Scotty says that Riley has turned the engines off, and they're going to need thirty minutes to regenerate them. Uhura reports that the ship's outer skin is beginning to heat and they only have about eight minutes left. And at this point, I mean, I am just all into this episode. Like the tension is just rising and you don't know there's there's no clear like path to getting out of this at this point. And I was just all into this episode. Uh, So Kirk turns to Scotty. Um, Scotty's like, you know, hey, I can't change the laws of physics. You know, I got to have 30 minutes. And so they go to the commercial break. And we come back to the captain's log. Again, another summarization of what's going on. Uh, Kirk and Scott are trying to start the engines. And Scotty says that you can't mix matter and antimatter cold without causing a, causing an explosion. Kirk says that they can balance their engines uh, into a controlled implosion. And Scotty says that it's only a theory and it's never been done. So immediately I knew where this was going. Like That's obviously going to be the solution that they, they come to. 
Uh, so Kirk calls the bridge, asking if they found Spock, while Scotty kind of rants about how if they had a, a row of computers working for weeks on the right formula, they'd have you know, 10,000 to 1 odds of succeeding. Uh, back in the sick bay, McCoy has injected Sulu with something, and Sulu is just just freaking screaming. And then he begins to come around and says that, well, he, he asks you know, what he was doing in the sick bay. So... Uh, McCoy contacts the bio and tells them to start prepping the serum. And the guy that responds sounds like he's just high as a kite. He's like, what, doctor? And just just (laughs) laughing it up. (laughs) The whole thing was just ridiculous. Like, that guy is not infected with anything. He's just been smoking a lot of pot. He he has no clue what they're even doing. (laughs) Uh, So McCoy explains that the water on the planet had changed into a complex chain of molecules and it was passed from man to man through perspiration, so they got to sweat it. And once it gets in the bloodstream, it acts like alcohol, and it depresses the centers of judgment and self-control. And so he orders that they get the serum to the lab to start preparing more, but the dude on the other end is just, just having a laughing fit. So McCoy gets pissed, and he orders Christine to release Sulu as he goes to leave. Um Elsewhere, Kirk finds uh, Spock as Scotty sends out an alert of the emergency restart of the engines. And Spock tells Kirk that he's just like, well, you know, I could never tell my mother that I loved her. Um, and Spock says that, you know, his his mother was an Earth woman uh, living on a planet where emotion is seen as bad taste. So Kirk uh, grabs him and explains that the engine room, you know, the engine room situation to him. And they have to risk a full power start, and Spock just begins to ramble, and just Kirk just slaps the hell out of him. And that is where we find out that Spock is half human, half Vulcan, because they hadn't alluded to that before, had they? Uh, they actually mentioned it like um, like like a very small sentence way way earlier, but this is the first time they really put it out there. So Spock is like, you know, hey, when I feel friendship for you, I I feel ashamed, and then. Kirk just smacks the hell out of him again. A couple of backhands, a couple of really good slaps. Um, and actually, I really enjoyed uh, Shatner's performance here. Like, he is really good at uh, conveying a sense of urgency. Yeah. Like, it his, just, yeah. Kirk is really just kind of losing it. And he seems like, you know, he doesn't know what he's going to do for the first time in the series so far. You know, it's not a clear path to what he's got to do. Like, every, I mean, he, he kind of knows what he has to do, but he doesn't know how he's going to. Like, things are just really out of hand. And Shatner was really, really good at just conveying that kind of, you know, urgency and, and almost hopelessness in this situation. Uh, unfortunately, Spock didn't take it too well. He's like, I'm going to backhand you. Yeah, sends him flying over the table. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's funny because like he's affected and he knows he's affected and he's slowly starting to lose it, but somehow he's still able to convey that okay, I'm about I'm losing it. I know I'm losing it. I can hold this. I can control myself long enough to save my ship. Yeah. So at this point, uh, Kirk slaps Spock one more time, and Spock just backhands Kirk across the table, like you said, Dan. Which maybe like does Spock have like superhuman strength? Because that was just a hell so. of a smack. Oh, yeah, you're right. He does be doing some strong, some things being super strong. I mean, he has that grip, though, so maybe Vulcans are, have extra muscles inside their their arms and hands or whatever that makes them grip stronger. Yeah. So Kirk gets up, and he starts yelling at Spock about the engines again, and Uhura interrupts him over the intercom to ask if uh, Kirk had found Spock. And <laughs> Kirk gets pissed and just slaps the intercom. And, uh, 
you know, who was like, well, you know, you guys got like three and a half minutes and Kirk just smacks the intercom and yells at her that, yeah, you know, he found her. He's got stuff to do. Like, how does she know which room to call, by the way? Like, she always seems to reach him pretty much no matter where he that is. That is a good question. But see, I'm wondering if if the all intercoms are connected together. So when you talk at one, it comes out of all intercoms. I mean, they've shown that they have that ability with the whole Riley singing thing, like as kind of like a general paging system. But I can't imagine that every time you needed to talk to Kirk, like the guy in the bathroom has to hear it. Or unless, <laughs> or unless there's a, I've seen got sensors that sense where they're at, maybe like on the ship, and they'd be like, Yeah, that's what I was wondering if maybe something they're carrying or something. Yeah, or something, or maybe they're just. Life signs are able to be followed by the cat by the computer, and they know where all life signs are at all times. I'm not sure. I bet I, you know what? I bet if we looked it up, we could probably find the answer to that. I feel like this show probably has been fleshed out enough, and that like the fan base already had those questions. So I bet there's an answer out there somewhere. Yeah, but I like us. I like us asking the questions anyway because we don't know. Oh yeah, for sure. So Kirk, who is now bleeding from his mouth from the backhand heard around the world, uh, realizes that he too has the disease. And uh, he he starts his own kind of rambling thing and tells Spock that he's better off without love. And, you know, Kirk says that he's better out, off without his own love. You know, and he's like, this vessel, you know, I, I give, she takes, and she won't permit me love my life because I have to live hers. So he's, you know, kind of expressing uh, his resentment towards being a captain and, and towards having the, the ship. And he's like, hey, you know, I have a, I have a very beautiful yeoman uh Ask Spock if he's if Spock has noticed her, and he's like, you know, you're you're allowed to notice her, but you know the captain's not permitted. So again, just kind of, you know, a, almost a regret, almost like uh, Captain Pike had in the uh, in the pilot, where being a captain, you know, he likes it, but he's obviously very restrained, and there there are things that he can't do, you know, like he can't have a love interest on his ship because you know I imagine that's against some kind of protocol. What's that saying? Uh, heavy head that wears the crown. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's really deep for him because you realize that he can't have. He has to, a lot of sacrifices to become a captain of a ship. He gives up a lot. Right. Exactly. You know, you give up relationships. You you could you know you're with these people all this time, but you're not really able to connect with somebody emotionally because it's against the rules. You know, I just right. I thought it was I thought it was very deep when he said that. Yeah, you you really get to see some inner workings of uh, Captain Kirk here. This whole scene, though, this kind of scene between them two is like the emotions of both of them. At the same time, you kind of realize, man, they really, they're really in it. Like you think they're just these tough macho dudes, but this whole episode happens to bring out like they're real, like oh, they got real emotions inside of them. And I think it kind of for Spock, it made him more relatable. Like even though he's logical, he still has that stuff inside of him. And then, and for and for Captain Kirk, even though he's super masculine and a man's man, he realizes, you know, hey, even though I'm up on top of here, I gave up so much to get here. I want you guys to know, I made a lot of sacrifices to get where I am today. I gave up a lot. Yeah, and they're they're both kind of, you know, it's drawing a parallel between the two and how, you know, uh, Spock has to hide his emotions due to, you know, the kind of the cultural norms for his people. And, you know, Kirk is just not allowed to have those emotions because he's in charge and he's a captain and that would be wrong. Yeah. So they both, you know, they both want that connection to somebody else, but for different reasons, they can't have it. So Spock says that there is an intern- an intermix formula. Uh, it's never been tested. It's just a theoretical relationship between time and antimatter. And I was like, oh, shit, are we doing time travel? Like, is that where we're going with this? <laughs> 
So Scotty enters the room and Spock tells him to stand by to do the intermix thing. Uh, Uhura reports that they are entering the upper stratosphere and the ship's skin temperature is 2,170 degrees. And that is a tough ship. Kirk tells Spock and Scotty to tell everyone to clear the corridors and the turbo lift. And, you know, they, they exit the room and Kirk has a little one-on-one with the, the ship talking about how he'll never lose it. Uh, so he enters the elevator and looks over and finds that someone had written a sinner repent on the inside of the elevator, which I know is supposed to have like some like what is the meaning for that? Like, I know it's supposed to mean something, but it's not like he's this great sinner. Like he hasn't really done anything wrong. So I feel like it's kind of a weird message to just stuff on there. Well, the the one guy, he did write something about uh, love mankind. And Senna repent. So I'm assuming the guy remember the guy earlier that was going crazy with the red with the red brush? So I'm assuming yeah. that he's thinking about the end of the world. You know, I assume yeah, he, that they're, kind that of a, they're all gonna die. Yeah, all gonna die type thing. I'm assuming he's one of those end of the world guys, so Yeah, just like whatever was meant to be conveyed there, I I didn't pick up on it. Yeah. Uh so Kirk enters the bridge and McCoy just rips his shirt sleeve down and it administers whatever their, their cure is. And uh He Kirk, he ripped that shirt fairly easily by yeah, the way and why did he have to rip the shirt like he couldn't have injected that literally anywhere else like just here you know lift your shirt up for a second or take your shirt off just just, just rip that shirt and kirk didn't even care like oh oh well yeah he's got i got a thousand of these uh so kirk contacts the engine room and tells them that you know they're all set and then tells the helmsman to set a hyperbolic course in the direction of the way that they came and then he kind of looks over to Janice and looks like he wants to say something, but then remembers, you know, that he's a captain and he can't. So that's the yeoman that he uh, was referring to in his conversation with Spock, which I wonder if maybe that's why he didn't want Charlie to get her because he wants her for himself. Oh, come on now. <laughs> he's like, if I can't have her, nobody can. So Kirk and Scotty are getting ready in the engine room and they tell Kirk that, you know, they're ready and you just give us the order and we are going to do this thing. And then the uh, they do the thing, basically. So the ship lights go dark, and everybody looks like they're kind of suffering from some sort of effect. It doesn't, doesn't really say what's going on. Um, and then we cut to, like, some stars that are moving backwards. And then the lights on the bridge come back, and Spock enters the bridge. Um, McCoy says that they've, you know, found a cure, and Spock is like, well, you know, obviously we were successful in what we did, and the engines have imploded, though. Uh, Sulu says that his velocity gauge is off the scale, and Spock says that the engine power is also off the scale. So they're now traveling faster than is possible for normal space. Uh, Kirk orders Sulu to check the elapsed time, and he reports that his chronometer is running backwards. So they're going currently backwards in time, which I think is interesting that it's not just like a quick jump, that they're like actively watching themselves go backwards in time. Yeah. I thought it was kind of weird that they were going backwards in time, but the planet was still gone. Yeah, I don't, like, I guess it's that whole time travel thing, like, is it reversing the order of things that they did, or is time moving around them? Like, are they, like, literally physically Mm. moving backwards in time, so they'd be moving away from the planet? Or is just, like, time going backwards? Well, it looks like they were moving backwards uh, from the screen. Right, yeah, and that that was what they conveyed with the whole star thing. So they, they... even though they're going backwards in time, they're still experiencing things at a normal pace inside the ship while the entire ship is 
like physically moving backwards, like like somebody hit rewind and they're just going back, but it's not affecting the inside of the ship. Right. Toward the end of the episode, they retain all their memories of what happened, so... Right. It's not like it was being reversed, it's just they jump back in time with the knowledge of what they just all went through. Yeah, it's it's really weird, just kind of like a very loose uh, definition or, or, you know, principle of their time travel. Uh, so Kirk says, you know, hey, we're going backwards in time, and then he orders them to begin reversing power. As they do that, Spock reports that they're back to normal time. And then uh, Kirk orders the engines ahead in warp one. Uh, Spock reports that they had regressed in time by 71 hours. So they are now, you know, three days ago. He notes that since their formula worked, they can go back in time to any planet and any era. And Kirk says that, you know, hey, we might risk that someday. And then he orders Sulu to resume course to their next destination. And that is the end of the episode. Uh, One of the questions I have is, so they reverse time, but like all of the people and okay, they, they reverse time. They have the cure for the disease thing. Uh, but also the rest of the ship is just running around crazy still at this point uh, while they're like, okay, let's go to where we're supposed to go next. Not like, Hey, maybe we should shut this shit down for a minute and make sure everybody's, you know, okay. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm <laughs> right. not sure at all. Honestly, I didn't. What I thought about was I was more thinking about the whole planet and the reverse thing. You guys talking about earlier, and I was trying to debate if they went back in time, could they go back and save the people who were on the planet originally? Yeah, that's another good question. Is like it clearly didn't have an effect on the people in the Enterprise, but surely everybody else, like they, like the Enterprise itself was moving backwards through time, but they were still, you know, conversing and everything normally. So could they go ahead? Well. I guess if they went far enough back, they could possibly stop that from happening to those people. I'm not sure. The irony is, I, did, I read a quote recently that said, um, if you travel five years in space and then come back to Earth or something like at light speed and come back, you'll be 20 years old, but everybody else will be aged 50 years or something like that. So maybe I, I read about that recently on, on something. So maybe it's just a whole time dilation type thing to where even though, even though they're even though they're backwards in time, everything else is still the way it is, and it only affects them since they're only affects the ship itself, only affects the ship and everything inside the ship, not anything outside it. Right. Yeah. I I feel like it's something I'm gonna have to look up to see how they handle tri- time travel in this series. So, final thoughts of this episode, uh, Dan. You know, overall, I enjoyed it for a misleading title name of Naked Time. There was no nudity. No. Spoiler not at all. alert. But, yeah, I enjoyed it. It was nice to see something different besides uh, mind-powered, godlike aliens. Paul, what did you think of this one? I think each episode keeps getting better and better for me. Like, each episode is better than the last, which is, like, really interesting. Because at one point, someone is, so episode has to be terrible. Like, I feel like, I, I know they keep repeating some of the same, um, the bad guys and the godlike creatures here and there. It always becomes annoying. But even, even though while they're doing that, each episode gets better. Like I think this is the best episode so far, by far. Like it's it's clever, it's interesting. The way they the way it's written, the whole idea of Spock and their emotions and Kurt's emotion, it just it's just really um, I don't know, just r- really cool with me. But I have to say the one the one quote that stuck with me, by the way, randomly, is uh when Spock says the tricorder can only record things that's designed to record. And space has so many unknowns, infinite unknowns out there. And for some reason, that stuck with me. 
in the parallel of our life where we have no idea what's out there still to this day. And I just, I don't know. I just, when I heard that, I thought, man, that's, that's really clever. And what is out there? Like, are we ever going to know what's out there for real? It's just when, when maybe one day aliens might show up, maybe the aliens aren't real. I don't know, but it's just, there's so many, even in life out, out there or in life down here, there's so many things we don't know because we don't know they exist. Yeah. And when you, you think about like the, the context of that, you know, when this show was filmed, I mean, we've learned a lot about space since that time and still know relatively nothing. Yeah. But not even space. We learned a lot about earth in general in that time. In the, in the last 40 years, we learned more, learn how to search for more things and do more things and learn more, that more things exist. And that's just even on earth. So I can just imagine the possibilities that's out there. And the idea of like the stuff we don't even know exists yet that we, we don't know that exists that exists right now. We don't even know they exist. Like we have no yeah. idea. So like it's just when he said infinite unknowns that stuck with me because I thought, man, there's so much stuff out there that we don't even know that exists on earth, out there, anywhere. It's just, it stuck with me. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, you don't know what you yeah, don't exactly. know. Exactly. So, I, but overall episode, amazing episode. My, my favorite so far. Uh, great acting by Leonard Nimoy. Great writing by everybody. It's just there, there's so much good. The small things that annoy me was so small compared to the things I was impressed with in this whole episode. So I, I liked it a lot. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much exactly how I feel. Um, easily my favorite episode that we've come across so far. I really hope that we get a lot more like that going forward because like this is just everything that I wanted in Star Trek. Uh, yeah, I was getting kind of tired of the whole mind power thing. And this was something that was just kind of so far out. Like, I would not have thought that, like, a virus would be something that they'd be contending with on the Enterprise. Um, but, yeah, just like you said, the the little things that, you know, I thought were kind of silly or didn't make sense did not detract one bit from this episode. And I really just hope that, you know, we get more of this going forward. Um, so unless you guys have anything else, then that that's pretty much it. And the next episode we're going to watch is going to be uh, Season 1, Episode 5, The Enemy Within. Uh, you guys can catch us on Twitter at WWST underscore podcast. If you want to email or have a question, uh, WWSTpod at gmail.com. Um, we are on Podbean at www.startrek.podbean.com. And you can find us wherever you find your favorite podcasts, including on YouTube. Um, so I guess that's pretty much going to be it for me then. All right, people, we're out. Later. Sayonara.